Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Revelation chapters 21 and 22.
Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. I always forget how enjoyable it is to be over here in this room together with you on Easter. And so we're back here again. And just like Elijah said, this time it's been two years. And I'm delighted to be here with you this morning. Happy spring. Happy Easter. It is a, a new season for us. And it's the season of all sorts of things. It's the season of bright colors and painted eggs that we go and search for and warmer weather that we find ways to enjoy and celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And if you're in a family, it may very well be the season of family road trips. Remember those? If you've ever been on the parent side of a family vacation, then I guarantee you there are two experiences that are familiar to you. One of those is convincing the kids that the destination is worth the journey. This is part of the job, you know? And if you're on vacation, you know that there are some questions that are asked on a regular basis. Probably the second most frequent question is from us parents to the kids, and that's how much does it cost? (laughs) But the most frequently asked question on a vacation is from the kids to the parents. Are we there yet? Especially if you're driving long distances, you hear it over and over again. Are we there yet? And maybe you find creative ways to answer the question, we're closer than we've ever been. That's my personal favorite. Or 10 more minutes every time, you know. And so we're trying to convince them. And it gets to the point where they're, I mean, again, long trip. You're like, man, let's just like pull over and camp here. Or let's just find someplace else to go or I want to be there. And you're telling them, no, 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 I promise. Like, hang on, when we get there, you're gonna, not even going to care about how long it took us to drive. So that's the first thing, convincing the kids that the destination is worth the journey. And the second thing is, once you get there, convincing them that the ride is worth the risk. Now, in this particular case, I'm not thinking of a drive. I'm thinking about like at an amusement park. If you remember the first time you tried to convince your children to get on a roller coaster and it's big and it's fast and it's scary and it looks like they could fall out at any time and they're watching this and they're not sure because they're afraid and it's dangerous and you're telling them, no, 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 just trust me. It's going to be great. Like, let's get on. They're strapped in. It's not as dangerous as it looks. However you you feel right now, I promise you that the ride is worth the risk. And I think today we find ourselves as we end the revelation in uh, something of a similar situation. One of our core convictions as a church is that what you always need most is a clear vision of Jesus. That no matter what is going on in your life or around you in your world is what you need more than anything else is to see him clearly. We think this is the message of scripture as a whole and of every part of it, including the end. You probably know that the Bible ends with this book called Revelation, which is a word in the ancient languages that literally means to to unveil something, to lift a veil or to remove a cover so that you can see what you were previously hidden from seeing. I suppose it's kind of ironic given some of the strange things people say about the book of Revelation, but the Revelation was written not to confuse us, but to clarify some things. And contrary to popular opinion, what the Revelation unveils It's not the world's dramatic end, but the identity of the world's true king. And so we've been studying this. If you've been with us over the last couple of months, you know we've been studying this book for probably about nine weeks or so. And we've seen that this book is is encouraging and it's powerful and it's challenging. And it's true that what we've seen in it is a clear vision of Jesus. What we've seen is that he knows, he is, he warns, he overcomes, he judges, he calls us out. And last week he wins. And who wouldn't want to see someone like that? Clearly, he is. Indeed, wonderful. But it's also true that Jesus is difficult to see. And if we're going to be honest people, then we've got to square with this. We've got to reckon with the fact that he is, after all, not here. Not visibly anyway. Not like you and I are. Which is why Revelation does end at the end. Which is why the last word has to be one of anticipation and hope of anticipation of a better future. Of hope that the pain of today will eventually reach its final tomorrow. I think hope is necessary for human flourishing. I think we can't live without hope. 
As soon as we understand the phrase, happily ever after, we wonder if these whispers of hope we hear from our hearts are telling us the truth. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I don't like our world. Sometimes you probably don't either. And I don't know if you feel it today, but, but submerged maybe deep in our souls somewhere is a cry for something else, something better, something more. Maybe it's deep down there, buried beneath the rubble of disappointed desires and broken dreams, but in there somewhere is a yearning for a different world, a different life, a different you. Could it be true? Could it be possible that our hearts aren't lying to us when they suggest to us that we were made for a world that is better than this one, that this can't be all there is? Could it be true that our suffering will finally cease? We hope so. You know, I think we kind of instinctively know that hope is something we can't live without, and so we find all sorts of creative ways to keep it in the forefront of our minds. A quick Google search will inform you that there are 15 U.S. cities named Hope. You got four more in Canada, two in the United Kingdom, and one in New Zealand. You'll find a Hope Bay in both Jamaica and Antarctica. Uh, Back in 2003, there was a NASA study of Jupiter's moon Callisto, and they named the study Human Outer Planetary Exploration, a.k.a. H-O-P-E, Hope. It's not just cities and stars either. You look at music, you can find, I was able to find 10 albums, two EPs, and 19 songs named Hope from artists as diverse as Jack Johnson and Nas, R.E.M. and Shaggy. Hope is the name of five movies, a TV network, a computer programming language, a conference for computer hackers, an ocean circulation model, whatever that is, a fictional character in the Marvel Comics universe, 16 ships in the Royal Navy, three colleges or universities, a Slovakian political party, an island, a railway station, and a poster of one of our previous presidents. No one wants to be hopeless, less still to have your hopes dashed. It's dangerous to get your hopes up, but we all do it. We hope for good things, hope not for bad things, and hope to see again our good ones to whom we must say goodbye. We hope, for, we, we, we hope against hope, even. I don't know if hope springs eternal, I'm not even really sure what that phrase means, but I certainly hope it's true, and you probably do too. Hope fascinates us, as I think is fairly obvious. Hope energizes us. Hope sustains us. But does hope also tease us? And there's the rub, because the more we talk about hope, the more you start to fear it's little more than wishful thinking. We don't exactly live in times that train us to value eternity. So the more we set our sights on what we can't see, the more we set our sights on what's to come out there, the less grounded we feel. But what if the opposite is true? What if hope is actually the secret to being properly grounded in time, in the here and in the now? See, the temptation, we know this, the temptation when hope gets hard is to put your hope in something else or abandon hope and give in to despair. And so we figure the answer, the solution is to meditate together on where we're going. And that's where Easter comes in. Today, we celebrate new life, not just in a general sense, but in the real historical, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus, who died a real death only to be raised up to immortal life on the other side of the grave. Easter has one theme, but there are many different ways to slice the resurrection pie. We could talk about why we think that this is true, this actually happened. We could talk about the death that preceded this resurrection. We could, we could talk about the different things that the resurrection means for us right now and here in this life and in this moment. But what we want to do this year is to back up a little bit and ask what Christ's resurrection reveals about our ultimate future. Well, we know that there's a death on Friday and we know that there's a resurrection of new life on Sunday, but we live in between. We live in Saturday. So what message does Easter have for Saturday? 
What does it tell us we can expect of our eternal tomorrow? According to the Revelation, and this is true of the New Testament as a whole, Christ's resurrection is prophetic, which means it gives us a picture, a preview. His new life gives us a picture, a preview of what our new life could become and what it will become if we continue on the path of staying united to him by faith. His resurrection shows us where the path of faith is taking us and whether it is worth another step, whether the destination is worth the journey and whether the ride is worth the risk. And so really this morning, I just want to join in with John who wrote the Revelation. I just want to join John in kind of painting a picture of sorts. He paints a picture, mixed metaphors that are kind of all over the place, to be honest. And so we're just going to pull out five themes, five images from these closing scenes of the book of Revelation that are going to illustrate for us where the way of Christ is taking us. Here's the first one. If you continue to follow Jesus, then we are headed for the satisfaction of home. Let me read again the opening verses of Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So note this, the sea is replaced by a city. Now, there's so much going on here, and I don't want to give you paralysis by analysis, especially not on Easter, but let me lay a little bit of context. And if you've been in our study, you've heard Mark talk about this. In the ancient world, the sea was like the symbol of chaos. And that's not hard to understand because no matter where you go, the earth threatens to undo you. And if you've ever moved across the country, you probably experienced in a way similar to what we have. About 16 years ago, when my wife Beth and I were about to set on our journey, we were leaving southwest Missouri and we were moving to the west coast. And it seems like every time we told somebody where we were going, invariably we would get one of two responses. Do you know about the fires? And do you know about the earthquakes? Every time. Then we lived out there for about a decade, and about eight years ago, when we were moving back from the West Coast to Southwest Missouri, when we would tell people, we would very often get a similar question. Do you know about the tornadoes? And we would say, yes, we know about the fires. Yes, we know about the earthquakes. Yes, we know about the tornadoes. They're real, and they're scary. But everywhere you go, it's something. And for a people living near large bodies of water, for the people who live where the Bible was taking place, who are dependent upon but constantly threatened by water, do you know about the sea? For one thing, it's unpredictable. They had these winds that would whip up over the hills and they would cause these furious storms on the water that you couldn't see coming. And not to mention the fact that literal monsters lurk beneath the surface. And so you have in Revelation 21, the sea. And in, in a way, the Bible is sort of ending in, 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 a, in a way that parallels how it began. Because Genesis 1 shows us early on, verses 1, 2, and 3, that the Spirit of God is hovering over the water of this chaotic primordial sea. And from this chaos, God brings order. Let there be light and days and land and animals and humans. And there was, and it was good. And God brings order into, from the chaos in the form of a garden. And sometimes many people think that Christianity is about getting back to the garden. But that's not true. It's like what Elijah said. It's a different garden. The garden was given us initially to be cultivated into something better. We're not going back. We're moving forward to what the garden was always designed to be, which in Revelation 21 is a city. Now, when you hear city, don't think traffic and smog and annoying politics. Those are worldly cities. This is a heavenly one. When you hear city, think home. And gardens are wonderful, but have you ever had tried to sleep in one? I mean, gardens are great places to visit, but eventually you want to go home. Somebody once said that home is wherever you have to exert the least amount of energy to be yourself. 
where you can just breathe, where you know you are where you belong. I have an opportunity to work with some of the young guys here in our church, and I was talking to one of them not too long ago, and and these kids are deep, and he said something to me that I thought was profound. He said to me, you know, I just kind of feel like I'm missing something in life, and I don't know what it is. And my first thought was, you're like not even 10 years old yet. And my second thought was, I want to fill it with Jesus. Jesus is the answer. But then I realized, no, 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 that's actually not a helpful thing to say in this moment because he knows, but he's expressing something that's deep. And so I said was something like, well, welcome to the human family, but this whisper in your heart that's crying out for another world is a good thing because it shows you that you were made for a better world than this one. You were not made for the world as it is. That's your mind and heart and soul longing for its eternal home. Now, I know that for some of you, the home you grew up in or the home that you live in now is, is not currently home in this sense. And that's, that's tragic, and I'm sorry, but I don't think that detracts from the metaphor. I really don't. If anything, it enhances your sense of what it is that you're looking for. Who doesn't want a place where you can just sit back, breathe, and be? Who doesn't want four walls within which you don't have to prove yourself? or wash your back, or keep up with the competition. Whether or not you've experienced that in this life, if you are in Christ, then when the world meets its end and heaven joins with earth and forming new creation, you will look around and one of the first things that you will say is finally, I'm safe, I'm here. This is where I belong. This is where I was made to be. This is home. Of course, what's home without the people who make it? Which is perhaps why John mixes his metaphor immediately so that you'll know that the city also symbolizes the people who live there. Again, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So we are indeed headed for the satisfaction of home, and there we are headed for the satisfaction of love. You may know that God's relationship with his people has always been depicted as a marriage right from the start of the Bible's story. Again, back in Genesis 1, we read in verse 27 of the first chapter that it's in the image of God that we were created. Male and female, he created us. And there's something there about the connection between mirroring God and reflecting him to the world and the male and female. And we soon find out that this first male and female is Adam and Eve, our first married pair. Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that marriage is the only way we reflect God to the world. That's obviously not true. Jesus was single. But it does show that marriage was never just about marriage. It was always a sign of something else. It is a living word picture of the love of God. The coming together of human husband and human wife symbolized a much deeper, more eternally satisfying reality that God in heaven wants a relationship with earth dwellers. It witnesses, marriage does, to a love for what is similar but different, a love that increases joy and produces new life. I feel like, though, I'm getting a little clinical. I don't mean to get in explanation mode. I'm actually thinking of an experience I had just a couple weeks ago. It wasn't in this room, but it was in a room like this one, where I got to officiate a wedding ceremony for a young bride and a young groom. They're actually members of this church, although they're visiting somewhere else to see family today. But one of my favorite parts of the wedding is similar to one of your favorite parts of the wedding, and that's watching him watch her walk down the aisle. Now, I don't usually get to see their face, but I can kind of tell what's going on. And this time it was very clear because she, it was one of those traditional ones. He hadn't seen her yet. And she walked in that room and came down that aisle and this brother started crying like he was bouncing. 
You know how when you're a kid in sports and somebody's starting to cry, but they're trying not to, they're trying to hold it in, so they're like heaving and making noises, and you're all sort of like (laughs) aware of it, but trying not to draw attention to it because you feel kind of bad for him? It was like that, but the opposite. I mean, he was literally bouncing and heaving, and we could all hear it, and we're not trying to avoid it because we're entering into his joy as he looks at his bride who's walking toward him to be married. Now, in that moment, you, you and I know what they will come to realize, that this marriage is going to be hard, that they're not always going to feel about each other the way that they feel about each other in this particular moment, and that's fine, and that's good, and that's important to point out, but we also know that this can be good, that this can become a place where they are fully known and fully loved, and that is what all of us want. It doesn't matter your age, race, orientation, or creed. That is what all of us need to be fully known and fully loved. Revelation 21, 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Soon, you guys, soon, the doors will open and we will walk down the aisle. Can you see the look? Can you see the love on his face? Third thing we see here at the end of Revelation is that we are headed for the satisfaction of presence. Next verse, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That idea of dwelling is actually a word that means to to pitch your tent, to set up camp, to live here. And so John is saying that God will come to live with us forever. He actually explains later on in these chapters that there's no need for a temple in new creation. The temple will be gone in the new world because the temple was actually designed to be a place where God would come and meet with his people occasionally. But we don't need any temple now because God is actually here. So therefore it's gone. Now don't be surprised if this is a tad bit anticlimactic for you. Like you get to be around God forever. Are you thrilled? And if so, great. But if not, it's not good that we sometimes feel underwhelmed by this promise, but I'm not sure it's entirely your fault. I'd say a good, I don't know, 80, 90% of our, of our daily social and mental habits train us to take a little bit too high a view of ourselves and a little bit too low a view of God. And I think that's at least partially responsible for us feeling a little underwhelmed. But we need not stay at the mercy of the forces that are around us because we have our imagination and we have our memory. If I could, I'd like you to remember a time for me. You don't have to close your eyes. You can keep them open. Why don't you think about a time in your life, the time in your life where you felt absolutely closest to God? I I don't know what this time was for you, but I want you to kind of go back there mentally here for a moment. It may have been a long time ago, maybe early on in your journey of faith, or it may have been really, really recent. I don't know. It may have been in a a loud room or it may have been a quiet place. It may have been around a lot of people or you may have been alone. It may have been a long experience or it may have just been a moment. It was so fleeting, you almost missed it as it passed. But in this moment, you felt his presence. You knew you were with him and his love was upon you. Now, I also want you to think of a time that was, well, the opposite. I want you to think about an experience in your life where you felt totally abandoned, where you felt God was farther away than you could ever imagine. Maybe it has something to do with a personal crisis. 
Maybe it was a mistake you made or a wrong done to you or the death of a loved one. Maybe it was a season of happiness, but you just felt empty and alone. Maybe you literally screamed at the sky. Why? But got no reply. I don't love taking you back to such a moment, but such is our world and we best not lie. So think of that moment too. Now with both of those moments in mind, let me ask you a question. If you had to take one of these experiences, only one, multiply it tenfold and live in that state of mind and heart forever, which would you choose? Are you having trouble making a decision? I kind of doubt it. And you do realize that if Easter is real, then one day the dream will become a reality and the nightmare a distant memory. One day God will come and stay with us forever. And so we look forward to the satisfaction of what will be there, his presence. But we also look forward to the satisfaction of what won't. We are headed for the satisfaction of healing. You know, sometimes the most desirable thing about a destination is what won't be there. Part of what we like about vacation is that ideally, we leave the work behind. Can you think about it like this? This isn't hard in our current cultural moment. Can you imagine if there was like a region of the world or an island where COVID like couldn't live? Like for some reason, it just couldn't survive the atmosphere and so it just died as soon as it got there. Like, I don't know how big that place would be, but I know we'd all wanna go there, right? Like we'd be doing everything we could to come up with whatever we needed in order to go stay there for a while until all of this was over. Flights in would be full, flights out would be the pilot and maybe the crew. We just don't want to live in a world where this kind of thing exists. That's our current reality. Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 22 verses two through five, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. I have another question for you and I acknowledge that it's a really strange question for Easter morning. I'm just gonna ask it though. What do you hate most about our world? Like if you could somehow snap your fingers and eliminate one thing from reality, what would it be? I'll avoid suggesting because I don't wanna get into the way. And I don't know what you're thinking about. Maybe one particular thing, maybe many, but I do know what John says about whatever it is that currently occupies your mind. Two words, no more. The tree whose fruit brings healing leaves no quarter for evil or suffering or pain. There will be no more tears in the new world. There'll be no more grief or death in the new creation. No more curse, no more sickness or sadness or depression. No more harassment or assault or war. No more murder, no more lies, no more fear. No more children being abused by those from whom they should learn love. No more bickering political deceits. No more greed exploiting the poor. No more power destroying the weak. No more. For those who belong to Christ, this is true, that everything we legitimately hate about this world will be absent from the next. No more. Gone. Healed. 
And this takes us to the fifth and final theme that we see at the end of the revelation. If we stay on the course that we're walking, if our course is faith in him, we are headed toward complete satisfaction in Christ. What an interesting word to keep before our minds this morning. While our reflections have followed John's metaphors this way and that over these last couple of months, this final piece of our final installment draws our attention to the truth that he satisfies. It's no secret that one of the experiences that unite all humans is that we want something that we don't quite have. We're looking for something that we don't currently possess. We feel like we're missing something in life and we're not sure precisely what it is. And the actual concept has gone by different names, happiness, pleasure, well-being, purpose, meaning. And while no one word says it all, my favorite is this word, satisfaction. To have everything you need and to know that this is true. That is something each of us hopes to find eventually. Now, our stories in print and on screen tend to symbolize this pursuit as an object or a place. So you have Atlantis and Infinity Stones and Horcruxes and the Ring of Power and the Fountain of Youth. They've all got their different flavors, but notice what remains. Find this and you'll find what you need. And in my opinion, few images rival John's from Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Of course it would be water. If the sea signifies chaos and death, then what better than a river to represent blessing and life? And to be clear, this water is safe to drink. 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. You might think that as John nears the end of the book, he would drop all the imagery and just kind of speak literally with us, speak plainly to us, but no such hope is fulfilled in the closing chapters of the Revelation. And as we've seen today, if anything, John maximizes his imaginative intensity As he approaches his own written finish line, it's like he's scrambling to find the right image, mixing metaphors as much as possible in order to communicate something of the awe-inducing power of what he had heard and seen. And so we are left with five images and an invitation. A city, a wedding, a temple, a tree, and a river. All of which invite us to come and drink, eat, stand in his presence, walk down the aisle, come home. If you are currently on the path of Christ and you're wrestling with your next step, maybe you know you'll take it or maybe you don't. Maybe you're wondering, you just cut your losses and go a different direction. I think what John would say to you, no, what he is saying to us is based on what I've heard, trust me all, the destination is worth the journey. And if you're currently on the outside looking in, a bit hesitant about what it might involve to put your faith in this person you can't see. I think what John is saying to us is based on what I've seen of what's to come, the ride is worth the risk. And as we come to the end of our study of Revelation, I can't think of a better closing prayer than the one John himself offers. He says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. And we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. 
Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.